Hi, everybody. This is Father Nathan, and you're with me on the Joyful Friar podcast. This segment is going to be the second of three on a story that was in my first Afterlife Interrupted book. This is the story of Don and first responder Ralph. If you listened last time, you heard the basics of Don's story. He was a 27-year-old uh, returning to work with, I think, three other co-workers after a luncheon. He was in the rear passenger seat of a vehicle moving very slowly on an interstate highway through a construction zone. He could see that there were highway materials, a lot of concrete and beams and things that were stacked along the highway and something dangling above it. He thought it was dangerous. And just as he had that thought, something fell and created a kind of a domino effect of materials rolling toward him that he thought could kill them all. So he ran from the car and was killed, uh, smushed. And in his afterlife experience of the whole thing, he he saw his bloodied face from out of body and he was just so appalled. He had um, uncommon attention to his personal appearance, put a lot of effort into looking his best and then to die looking such a bloody mess was so enraging and appalling to him that in his afterlife, that was uh, a great uh, issue to be overcome his anger and his disgust at looking so awful uh, as he left here. People can think anything, any way they please, and that's just the way that his thought process moved after his death. So in this uh, podcast, we'll be talking about compassionate response to the way that Don's story has affected people who've heard of it. Well, Catherine, my sister, can also help people speak through she has the same prophetic gift that I do. And in one session, a follow-up session with Don to get his permission to use his story, he moved through her to speak to me. I remember he kept touching her face. He was, of course, it's when you're co-conscious, it's sort of your face. You're not, it's not exactly yours, but you're borrowing the body. And he kept touching her face and I called attention to it. And he said, well, it's just such a sweet face. And I said, yes, she's a very sweet person. Um, well, anyway, some of the things that, that Don told us was um, it had bothered him when he was a young man, I think in high school and in college, that other men could be unnecessarily critical, judgmental, mocking of their peers, especially over their appearance. And I think some of it had to do with appearing manly or less manly than somebody thought you ought to. And he endured some of that. He really liked being dressed up and he liked looking his best. Um, he talked about like prom pictures, uh, formal dates like Valentine's dances when you were really looking your best and other people making fun of that. And he said, I'm so glad there's none of that here. And it just never occurs to anybody that they need to do that to other people. And he he found some part of uh, the afterlife that suited him very well. Maybe it was made available to him on purpose, but it was like a costume department where he could wear things that men wore in different times and places, like powdered wigs or ruffled collars. And it just, it fed his spirit to look good again 
And to kind of do it in this time travel way or whatever was just kind of some fun. He just said, I know this is, it might sound silly to you, but it's uh, something I've enjoyed doing for a little while at least. So in terms of compassionate response to him, he was a suffering man, but one of the ways that he found some solace and uh, some joy in his life, in his afterlife, was just looking good by being able to get dressed up in ways that other people might have immediately wanted to make fun of him and finding that nobody around him wanted to do that. And I love that about the work that I do in this afterlife realm. I keep hearing it again and again. Nobody makes fun of anybody else. Nobody criticizes where it's not necessary. It's changed me because um, I can enter into that kind of banter and, and uh, you know, just sarcastic speech in a group against somebody just because we're having a, fun at somebody's expense. One of the things I hear in the afterlife all the time is, thank God that's over with. <laughs> Nobody even wants to do that here. There's nothing wrong about valuing one's own looks. Um, I remember Shelby, the Southern lawyer, said, none of us needs to adorn ourselves. We all look wonderful. And so think of all the time and effort that goes into uh, kind of over-the-top efforts to uh, look better or to overcome some perceived deficit in our appearance. It's just It all just goes away. Uh, if we could be compassionate to ourselves on this plane, Maybe we just allow ourselves the wrinkle or the wart or whatever it is that um, the extra pound or whatever, and just get over it and, and get over that with, with regard to other people too. Uh, he told us that he was allowed to be angry as deeply and as long as he pleased. That was his response to his sudden death on the freeway. One of the things that he was angry about was the incompetence of the chain of command of people who should have had better notions of public safety, putting the traveling public at risk in a way that caused his death infuriated him. And another person might have gone through that same event and been angry about that for a moment and let it go and been on to another thought, but not for him. That was a very central one. So in terms of response, a compassionate response is um, to, to that is, have you ever seen yourself replay some angry, hurtful drama in your own life and insist that the way you're seeing it is the only way that it ought be seen? Maybe uh, something that somebody said at the wedding or at Thanksgiving dinner or some slight somewhere in the workplace or God only knows, it can be any number of things, but we can sometimes paint ourselves into an emotional corner by insisting that the appropriate or normal or natural way to respond to the thing that occurred was my enraged response. And well, if your enraged response is making you miserable and making other people miserable, could you possibly think of it any different way? Nobody insisted that, that uh, Don do that, but eventually he did. And that, that really made all the difference. There was very little talk therapy involved in the background. Remember that my prayer partners and I are the discharge staff in a continuum of healing. We're all the way at the end. We've not done very much of the healing work at all. We're receiving the work that other people have done. And we're helping this now mostly healed person out the door. But 
It didn't, didn't sound to me like Don had engaged in a whole lot of back and forth with some, pardon me, some sort of afterlife counselor. But somehow they put into his imagination other ways that he might think. When he first heard about us, Don hardly heard anything except the sound of his own angry self-talk. It was like that looping anger inside of him was the only thing that he could hear. But then there came a point where he was able to overhear my prayer partner and I talking as we were preparing to welcome him. And somebody said to him, some voice that was not his own said, you must be awake to this. And he listened and he said there was a combination of light, dawning light, an attractive brilliance, and the sound of someone else's conversation that appealed to him and made him want to be nearer to it. So there was some sort of dawning of light and sound that was pleasant and attractive. Okay. If, in case you have dark thoughts about the fate of someone you love who has died suddenly or violently and you're frightened that they might be in some terrible circumstance, please just pray gently toward them. Let them hear the sound of your voice. Ask that they hear you. Don't make a big deal about whether you get anything back or not. I'll go into more of that in the next one. Uh, you know, the third in the, the sequence that we do is spiritual practice. But for right now, um, I thought it was important to point out that Don began to perceive in both light and sound something that was attractive to him that brought him closer to us. When he was inside my sister, Catherine, and speaking through her, he showed her that on his body somewhere, I think on a forearm or I think it was a forearm, wrist, something, were some numbers. And she formed the thought of why would anybody do that to themselves? It was something on the order of the tattoo, but it was a, more like a brand, like cattle. And he could feel inside of her because he was co-conscious with her that it was a, a, a judgmental reaction that she saw that and had a negative judgment of it. And he said that my mother said the same thing or felt the same thing when she saw it. We were African-American. And she said, the last thing we thought we were doing was sending you off to college so that you could be branded like a slave. And he felt ashamed. And he even called it, um, it was uncommon. He called it a foolishness. I, I'd never heard uh, the way that the, in the, the way that he spoke it, foolishness was a noun. Uh, it was a foolishness. But he went on to say, but now that's long ago, and I understand that I don't need to bother about that. I asked him, I said, well, you know, could you now uh, get it erased? You're in the afterlife, can you just make it go away? And he said, Does, doesn't matter. And I said, is that because you just don't care? And he said, right, because it's been resolved. I don't need to care about that. It's just a little piece of my history. That's all. Um but remember, we're on a mission when we're in, involved in one of these uh, crossings. We're trying to help a person move a very important step from this therapeutic level they've been at to something uh, much more fun and, and uh, free. 
So we were uh, moving in that direction with him, but the ugliness was still on his mind. He had a sense of uh, beauty, handsomeness, um, aesthetic. That was important to him. And I told him, I said, well, I'm kind of the same way. I'm, you know, my surroundings are clean and ordered and in the way that I dress myself and groom myself, I don't like to just throw any old thing on and, and uh, head out the door. And he said, well, that's important. It's, uh, it's important to look the role. And I said, well, you and I share that in common. We, we need to look the part. I think that's the way he put it. But he still had this idea that I hadn't utterly gone away, that he was a bloody mess. And he didn't want anyone, he was beginning to think of who might come for him. And he didn't want it to be anybody that actually knew him who might have to see him in that bloodied state. And he had also said that his anger was so red hot at one point that he didn't want anyone to see him that angry either, and that they were both equally ugly. I thought that was pretty insightful. You know, there might be, are there any ways in which you, uh, you know, go overboard with some emotional response to something in a way that really makes you an ugly version of yourself? Maybe if you become aware of that, you might, you know, tone it down or or at least uh, shield the rest of us from having to see that aspect of you. He was kind of thinking in those terms. But he formed the thought, maybe with some help from a guardian, I don't know, but he formed the thought, but wait a minute, if that's just the way I am, could there be somebody that could come for me and not be bothered by that? Aren't there people who are used to seeing uh, ugly, bloody messes like... uh, emergency medical technicians in an ambulance, uh, firemen, policemen, the kind of people that are first responders on the scene of wrecks and other tragedies where people might be disfigured. Aren't there people like that? What if somebody like that came for me? Isn't that a creative way to think? If you are too stuck in some conundrum, some place in your life where you just don't see there's any way out of this, I've tried everything and nothing works, Maybe you talk to Don and ask for Don to pray along with you and say, you know, you were creative about thinking, well, maybe somebody that's used to that could come and be with me. Maybe there's uh, something in there that uh, could be of help to you. Maybe there's some way out that you hadn't thought of yet that maybe Don could help with. Anyway, once he formed that idea, we just said to him, well, have you asked for that? And he hadn't. So he said, well, why don't we try that? Would you be okay if we just ask God to send somebody like that, that's used to seeing blood and gore, who wouldn't care? And he said, yes. And so we did. And almost instantly, here came Ralph. None of us ever heard of Ralph, but you don't know the name of the ambulance driver when they show up either, do you? Ralph just showed up because he was asked. Well, we asked Ralph, uh, hello, Ralph. Uh, Tell us a little little bit about you. And he said, well, last thing I remember, I was driving my ambulance and I got T-boned by a teenager who had earbuds in and didn't hear my siren. He blasted right into me and killed me. We said, wait a minute. You mean you haven't really moved on since that? And he said, no, I think I've been asleep. And we said, well, how did you know to even come here? And he said, well, my pager went off. Oh my God. His pager went off. So it was going to be, is this the blind leading the blind. We've got somebody that hasn't completed their crossing 
guiding somebody else who hasn't completed his crossing. And we said to him, Ralph, how would you even know where to bring him? And he didn't have time to answer before he said, well, I don't know, sir, but there's an, an, there's an escalator that just opened up. It's, it's bright and it's moving up. And if there's people up at the top waiting, waving at us and saying, come on, get on. That's all it took. Isn't that marvelous? I'm not making this stuff up. And I don't think it's of the devil. Sometimes I'm told, you know, uh, this the, all of this just must be, you know, some devilish trick. I don't believe so at all. I just think it's part of God's great creativity. Anyway, this, this escalator of light opened up for them and off they went. So it was uh, encouragement from above. Well, that's my compassionate response. Probably other ways that we could uh, enter into his suffering and respond to the suffering of people who are wondering about the afterlife and so on and hear questions in his story that make them wonder. That's enough for this little episode. The next one, the third of three in this series, will be some spiritual practices that might emerge uh, that might be helpful that, that uh, come out of this story, or at least the way I think about it and how I want to pass that on to you. That's this little episode of The Joyful Friar. If you'd like to be in touch with me, please don't ask me questions about my books without first having read them. If uh, you would like to be in touch after that, you can go on my website at nathan-castle.com. Go to the contact section. It'll bring, bring you a little form that it doesn't have very much information on it, but I like to know a phone number and the uh, time zone in which you live. I get contacts from all over the world. And if I were to try to be in touch with you, I wouldn't want to be calling you in the middle of the night. Uh, please don't contact me through Facebook Messenger or any other uh, places that you might find online. I just don't have time to track all of them down. So that's it for now. God bless you. And I hope you'll uh, tune in for our next episode. That'll be spiritual practices that flow from the story of Don and first responder, Ralph. God bless you. Bye now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joyful Friar. You can visit me at nathan-castle.com. Send me a message by clicking the contact button. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make a donation by clicking the donate button. See you next time. God bless.